The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hello everybody, tis I, your haunted mask-wearing wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your Knight of the Living Dummy 3, Revenge of the Living Dummy Bruiser, Jake. <laughs> I, should I have said I am Slappy's evil twin? That's part of the Slappy World offshoot. Regardless, today we're doing Goosebumps. Bum, 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 bum. I'm a scary little cat. And then the dog goes, Holden, right off the bat, I'm going to say this, and you cannot mock me because I am not making an exaggeration. I This isn't a joke. The single greatest piece of music ever recorded in the history of human achievement is the dog going, ar, 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 in the Goosebumps theme song. You're an idiot. No, I'm too. I'm <laughs> right, yeah, eighteen levels you, beyond genius. You are, you are, you are mildly correct. I will you say are, that. Mary, put it, pop it in there. When I say, when I, when I goosebump, you goosebump. Or, 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 or. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, yes, today we are doing goosebumps. Um, this was one of those topics that I was definitely when we were going back and forth about what we should do. I was like very hesitant, but mildly confident that this would be a fun topic to do. But at the same time, I didn't know until like I opened up the wiki and I opened up the the interviews and and realized, oh, I really am ex- excited to do this episode. And there's a lot here because you goosebump fans, you guys kept this th- this train rolling, man. This has been one of the more enjoyable. I feel like yeah. uh, research topics a because like you said the Goosebumps fandom has their shit down they are like loyal they are meticulous they are fun loving uh, you know it kind of the the fact that it blends uh, like safe childhood entertainment with spooky ookies like gives it so much more of a refreshing uh, atmosphere than like some of the other topics we've covered where it's just like about the blackness <laughs> it's about embracing the darkness no man it's just about like mummies or mummies are fun. yeah mummies are fun and this guy likes to write a shitload of books and he <laughs> seems nice you know what I mean for what it's worth and also it lets us talk about and we let Let's go ahead and start with our personal experience with this series. It lets us discuss, I think, everybody's fondest memory from school. This was the best day of elementary school. This was that what was it in middle school as well? I, either way, the Scholastic Book Fair mm. 
mm-hmm. when that rolled through your school, and I think we mentioned this on the show previously, actually, because I talked about the fire truck day <laughs> yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. When when the Scholastic Book Fair rolled through your school, it was like the best shit ever. There were all these cool books, all this stuff, and and nothing raffles, is more activities. raffles, activities, and just it was just a lot of fun. And nothing is more synonymous with those book fairs for me and my childhood than goosebumps. Like later generations, it was Harry Potter, but for my childhood specifically, goosebumps ruled the school. Well, goosebumps was the single, you know, R.L. Stein. Robert Lawrence Stein, Bob Stein, if you're nasty, uh, was the you know number one children's author of all time until he got mm-hmm. kind of pushed over by another, uh, I guess, <laughs> initial-based children's author. Yes. Yes. So school book club day, that's when I would buy all my Garfield books and my Calvin and Hobbes books. Garfield books, and they had Mother Goose and Grimm, I remember. <laughs> Dude, I got so hyped for the book fair. And I, what I love about the Scholastic Book Fair, which we're going to do more, is like, you could just go get the schlockiest schlock. Like, you could just go get, like, comic books and shit and the shit they didn't actually want you to necessarily be, like, reading for education. That's what made it so great. They were like, here's fucking Mad Libs. And shit like that, you fucking oh, idiot kid. Beautiful. And not only, well, that, and uh, I mean, now that I think about it, like, th- one of the things that this, uh, that Goosebumps brought kind of flooding into me was uh, just really gushing all up in my guts. <laughs> I was about Memories to say something. Just squirting. <laughs> um, oh, God. Knows. Is that um, <laughs> Scholastic, like, had a stranglehold on my school. We used yeah. to read, like, the weekly new- reader, like, news things that uh, Scholastic would publish every week. Uh, we would get the catalogs. We would mm-hmm. get like the the book club catalogs. If the, the teachers, if the teachers ever said anything bad about Scholastic, men with Scholastic armbands <laughs> would walk in and drag that teacher away. I mean, by the late nineties, they had the chips that would just kind of like give them a little like uh, you know uh, 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 adjustment. <laughs> but yeah, it was this uh, you know this kind of weird mixture of corporate and education. Uh, kind of just out there, just kind of like free and kind of like uh, nonchalant in our lives. But uh, I feel like Goosebumps was what kind of like kind of shattered that illusion because mainly the idea was, hey, we have kids reading. Yeah. And parents going, oh, fuck, I can't believe it. They put down their goddamn Game Boys, the reading books, right. actual books. And then they actually picked up the books and were like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is an 80-page pamphlet written by an old Jewish man about what if a kid became a bee and it sucked, but then it was fine. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Kids were, I, I think it actually put the two and two together. Like, it was like, okay, we can dang, we can like get them to come into the room where we sell them actual actual books with the cartoons and the you know they also had like a lot of little games and stuff kind of things that you could get little um i remember there's like magic marker kind of or uh invisible ink marker things they had or whatever either way they 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 kind of drew you in with this kind of kid toy stuff and comics and cartoons and stuff but then goosebumps really kind of brought it all together it was like half ridiculous cartoon schlock kind of stuff Mixed with, um, you know, actual reading words on a piece of paper and getting a, a full plot arc, getting you from beginning to end in a single actual book. And it was like a collector's thing. They were all numbered. Mm-hmm. And man, I, I, my biggest thing I remember was just like how cool I, fe- I thought that the covers were in the sense that the goosebumps itself would pop out yeah no, and they it was, embossed it, it so it had yeah. that like goosebump thing and it was like ah that well i don't know why as a little kid all of those things stood out and the art of course mm-hmm. stood out huge but it, it just seemed to like appear out of nowhere and all of a sudden like everybody was into it well 
we'll get into the kind of arc of this series success. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Goosebumps specifically like kind of exploded the lie of like the book as like this fundamental, holy, boring object of adulthood and like right. education. Right. And Goosebumps like for a, for a hot second, like made people remember that like schlocky fucking fiction was the blood and soul of the written word yes. for centuries. Yes. And that like it was snooty, weird, like kind of, I don't know, hippy dippy fear of new media that made them cherish the book as this like, you know, oh, no, no, good children read books and right. good kids, uh, you know, obey the rules. And then like Goosebumps came in and be like, fuck you, old man. Fuck you. I'm reading. Yeah, it's a book, but I don't give a fuck. It's a dumb book. I'm a dumb kid. That's Things right. are dumb. I use those goosebump papers to roll up my first joints, Hell son. yeah. Use the cover for the little, like, filter tip, yeah. and then use the pages to roll the joint. Yeah, dog. And I wasn't even, I was smoking crack first. Was it lame to use the little piece of cardboard <laughs> as the filter tip in the joint? Is that, like, common practice? I, always... I use it. I literally just rolled a joint before coming here, and I used the cardboard filter. So, no, it's not lame I always, to do I always that. wondered if I was being finicky. Or I always use Use okay. It. I always do that. That's it. Also, um, informs the joint, uh, the shape. Oh, it of makes it. it easier to roll. It makes it, yeah. It informs the shape a little bit better. So, anyways, uh, why don't we then? We've been talking about Scholastic, and honestly, Scholastic started before R. L. Stein. So, why don't we get into the Scholastic press history stuff first, and then we'll move on to Stein and tell the glorious tale that is. Uh, the creation of Goosebumps. Um, well, Scholastic Press was founded in Pennsylvania by Maurice R. Robbie Robinson, not the same Robbie Robinson that played guitar in the band, uh, in 1920. Went all the way back to 1920. It was then called the Scholastic Publishing Company, and it published youth magazines, which we'll get into later, but uh, R.L. Stein started writing a youth magazine for Scholastic. That's how we got in there. Um, and the first of which was the Western Pennsylvania Scholastic. This covered high school sports, social activities, that sort of thing. And it debuted in October 22nd, 1920. The first book that they put out was published in 1926, and it was called Saplings. This was a selected student writings that won the Scholastic Writing Awards. Now, after World War II, cheap paperback books became available, which put Scholastic in the book club business, offering classic titles for 25 cents through its teenage book clubs. It was actually after the war. It was just the proliferation of, pay of cheap paperback and that's how they got into the selling the uh, uh shitloads of books to schools all over the place um and through the 70s is when they really became known uh for the scholastic book clubs the book uh purchasing service done through the schools i can like see i remember the what you were referring to earlier those magazines that would come in again i would get so excited because it was like the one time you're it was like kind of like it was like the one time your parents let you sort of buy like almost a toy. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it was like sanctioned through the school and you could go and be like, I really want this. I really want this. And the more you look into the scholastic business practices, you know, the uh, basically the publisher would ply schools with these free materials and these free like events. And uh, the schools in return would get a cut of the sales they made through these programs. So everyone was just like getting their fucking, uh, you know, their lips wet. That's mm -hmm. not how that that was not the it's just splashing up you know in what, you with man, memories. I'm gonna say it. What's happening with you today? I'm horny. I'm horny today. <laughs> I've like, never seen this side I had of a you. horny morning, and like it's just been carrying through this whole day. This is amazing. I, he came in wearing a mesh tank top. <laughs> 
just spinning a basketball on the tip of his and finger, which I've never seen three him do blow pops. Three blow pops at once. It was All like, cherry. It was like, when you get to the gum, you're just going to spit it out. And he was just like, that's the point. <laughs> Uh, but, but yes, you're right. And actually, I have the details on that system. All right. How did this grift work? So Scholastic typically offers participating schools and classrooms one point for every dollar or local unit of currency of products ordered. Additional points may be earned during special promotion times, such as the beginning of the school year, etc. Points may then be redeemed for books and school supplies at a rate of approximately 20 points to the dollar. At minimum, schools earn 5% of book orders in free products so they're actually getting supplies and shit yeah in return um f- through scholastic which is th- I, I think is kind of interesting so they kind of just cornered this market kind of like girl scout cookies i feel like yeah. amway there's all definitely yeah. there's these weird unique american grifts that just sustain these companies for decades at a time and um you know they were just kind of rolling along being the wholesome friend of schools you know and you know no fuss no muss and everyone everything was going swimmingly uh, meanwhile, in Ohio, <laughs> a Jewish family gave birth to a Jewish boy in October of 1943 in Columbus, to be exact. But then later, uh, but Arlstein would uh, end up growing up in Bexley, Ohio. I <laughs> opened the Wikipedia page for Bexley, Ohio, and immediately passed out from loss of blood pressure. <laughs> they had a population of 11,000, and I was out. <laughs> he was described as a very fearful child, actually, which I kind of love. Uh, the mo- his mother gave him his first big scare reading Pinocchio to him, which I think would come into play later with the dummy oh, series. Oh, Slappy. You're talking about Slappy the dummy. Uh, yeah. Exactly. That he would he, he at first big scare was reading Pinocchio to him. Stein said of this, the original Pinocchio was terrifying. He goes to sleep with his feet on the stove and burns his feet off. Uh, not only that, but in the original story of Pinocchio, uh, Jiminy Cricket gets fucking ganked with like a hammer. Yeah, dude, it's it is for real. Pinocchio just gets sick of the lectures and kills Jiminy Cricket. My parents had a old Pinocchio book. <laughs> That had creepy as fuck illustrations, and no joke, my brother used to torture me by chasing me around the house with the Pinocchio book, like with the pages open to the pictures because they scared me so much. Um, he also, in a lot of interviews, talks about finding a typewriter in the attic at age nine and yes. just having the thrill of I writing. It. Like it I love it too because to that's such a goosebumps premise. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like finding a haunted typewriter and you know what I mean? Um, but yes, he wrote short stories and joke books actually. And he was much more of a comedy <laughs> writer when he first started out. Well, he- okay. So so here, here's how this breaks down. Um, so it's the 1940s and then by the time he's like a kid, he's it's the 1950s. And what were the biggest fucking deal in entertainment for kids in the 1950s it was ec comics it was Mm. tales from the crypt Mm -hmm. it was tales of suspense you know the mystery vault all these like uh all these comics that got like you know eventually shut down as we've covered a million times before by the comics code authority and frederick wortham but like also you the universal monsters the creature from the black lagoon uh the horror that creeps in the night the blob return of the blob uh and if you look at the Goosebumps titles. It's all just fucking 1950s like horror. It's very specifically this era of of children's entertainment that was deemed too extreme and kind of just got shunted away into the memory hole only for him to bring back later. 
but he but they didn't he didn't rely on that at first uh he was a fucking jewish like fucking bobby hill on king of the hill just obsessed with humor just what yeah. are you talking about exactly just cheesy on the other end of that coin cheesy old vaudevillian style cat humor. skills yeah cat skills. Young and that's what slappy is slappy right oh yeah slappy that's, that's what slappy is he's the combination too he's the he's the 50s horror themed uh mixed with the cat skills ridiculous uh you know comedian dummy yeah i sh- yeah he's yeah no it's literally an excuse for him to bust out all the old jokes that he used to churn out exactly um, he uh re- singularly focused his entire life to make it to osu so he could get on staff at the sundial yes uh, which was a prestigious humor magazine that thurber also edited of this he said that's basically all i did in college i did this magazine you know i never went to class and i as editor was entitled to 22 percent of the profits so it paid my way to new york I always knew I wanted to move to New York from Ohio. Actually, I thought at the time, if you wanted to be a writer, you had to live in New York. You had no choice, right? So, of course, after Ohio, he moves to NYC and starts uh, pursuing a career in writing. And his first gig is, uh, uh, I'm going to read this rather long quote, but it's very funny to me. He started writing for fan mags, literally making up. Uh, interviews with like famous bands and musicians and and heartthrobs and stuff, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, just make them up. They just made them up. <laughs> what, what, what else are what else are like young women gonna buy at the supermarket line? Just fucking make them up. It's so fine. he said, my very first job in New York was making up interviews for fan magazines. This woman, she had six movie magazines that came out every month that she had to fill. She worked out of a brownstone up on 96th Street. I never saw her dressed. She was always in this brown bathrobe. She never went to the movies or anything. She just did these magazines. And I would come in in the morning and she'd say, do an interview with Diana Ross. So I'd sit down, type, type, type. Type, 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 and I'd write an interview with Diana Ross, and uh, she'd say, do an interview with the Beatles, fine, type, 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 and we made it all up. It was a great job. You know, it was very creative, for one thing, and I had to write three or four of them a day, so it taught me to write really fast. It didn't last very long, and after that, he moves on to trade mags. He says, from there, I got a job at a trade magazine. This was the worst year of my life, writing for the soft drink industry. (laughs) I was like assistant editor of soft drinks. I would write about new syrups and flip top cans. And there was a big debate back then over whether soda could come in plastic bottles. Oh, weird. A fledgling Jewish comedy writer who makes it all the way to New York City only to find himself with the only paid work he can get doing what is essentially clickbait and blog articles. <laughs> what a weird story I don't relate to at all on a very deep, profound level. <laughs> oh, oh, your dream didn't work out, but there's still lots of writing work to be done and it's all you've ever known. So you just got to take these gigs undignified as they are because God damn it, you're not going to work a real job. Not with these fucking weird legs you got. But unlike... The metaphorical, metaphorical person, person I'm not describing. R.L. Stein's life dreams really did come true. He became a fiction writer all on his own. I'm only 34. He got his break at 50. I'm still good. He really did? I mean, that's how the timing works out. He was born in wow. 1946, you said? Yes, that's and right. And the Goosebumps books really only hit it big after like 1996, 97. I didn't even put it together. Bucker was 50 years old. I always saw him as this young playboy oh, gallivanting yeah, around with titties in his mouth at all times. This time. sensual, nebbish with a gross mole on his forehead. <laughs> yeah, why does he get that removed, by because the way? Because it's his visual trademark. <laughs> and if, you, if you're too busy looking at his forehead mole, you won't notice that he's constantly flicking his tongue at you. <laughs> 
So after the fan mags, after the trade mags, all that stuff, he answers an ad in the Times and gets a job as an assistant editor at Junior Scholastic, writing history and geography at first. Uh, He says, that's the first time I wrote for kids. I never planned to be a kids writer. I always wrote these funny novels for adults, but no one ever wanted them. I never wanted to be scary either. I only wanted to be funny. But also, they're very close related, humor and horror, he says, which I do agree with. I think I have many, I say this all the time, music horror and comedy all and 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 professional wrestling as well like every comedian yeah comedians love horror films comedians love professional wrestling comedians love and every musician thinks they're a comedian every comedian thinks they're a musician yada 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 right and i think it's because there is such a specific type of pacing that happens a specific rhythm that happens in horror in comedy that you have to tap into that is different from other forms that, that because kind it's of less it's, about it's a build. It's a build to a punchline. It's a build to a scare. Well, because when it's done correctly, it's almost less about expressing you as a you know. It's less about the purest expression of your thoughts and more about translating your thoughts into an audience reaction. Mm, mm-hmm. um, also, comedy and horror. You know, it's about uh, setting up a premise, setting yes. up a base reality, subverting it, building tension, and then releasing it. Yep. It's all you know. It all kind of works. Uh, I tried desperately to track down, uh, while he was writing all this, these comedy stuffs, he was using the pen name Jovial Bob Stein. Jovial Bob which Stein. Which is such a fucking weird, like, it's, it's, if on the podcast you introduced yourself as very funny Holden McNeely. It's just <laughs> a very weird. But that's such a kid's thing too, right? And, and did you find some stuff? I couldn't find, like, besides the joke books, which were, you know, all these, just literally just collections of old, like, jokes. Uh, there was one that he actually wrote called How to Be Funny. <laughs> All I could find was like a weird old review of the book. And it was uh, a joke book disguised as a how-to book with a stand-up comic's quick delivery and casual digressions. Stein has readers warm up by matching, completing, and unscrambling one-liners and riddles. He then proceeds with instructions for how to knock them dead at school, at the dinner table, and uh, at parties. For example... If your family doesn't own a tablecloth, then demand that they buy one. You will never get laughs with placemats, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> like, it's what? very, like, it's very, uh, what's another one? Um, okay, here's a tip from How to Be Funny, written by Jovial Bob Stein. Placing strange objects in your soup almost always gets laughs. An eyeball, a salt shaker, a divorce paper. Attempting to wear your soup is usually less successful. Ah, I see. Pouring it on your head doesn't do as well. I would actually disagree with that. I've done many murder for sketches where I poured soup all over my dick and balls <laughs> and on my butt butt, and, they, and everyone laughed. Uh, if you must tell elephant or grape jokes, never tell less than 30 at a time. Oh, okay. It's, it's very hacky. It's yeah, very it's super it's, hacky. Know, it's very. I want to see him do stand up like really badly. I mean, but that's like that's well, comedy he does. writing. That's right? the thing, though. If you listen to his interviews or when he does public speaking, um, like literally every bookstore, every art gallery, like the man will not turn down a speaking engagement. And he has an act. He has a routine that yeah. I've heard him go through that's a million funny. times. Like he'll always talk about how his favorite letter ever written to him from yes, a kid. Yes, I love is, this story uh, though. Dear Mr. Stein, I have read all 40 of your books. I thought they were boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that one. I think that's a good anecdote though. So of course- Dear gonna- Mr. Stein, you are my second favorite author. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, so he's doing Jovial Bob Stein, but he's doing it. He creates a humor magazine at Scholastic called Bananas. This is for teens, pub- published by Scholastic Press. It ran for seventy-two issues between nineteen seventy-five and nineteen eighty-four. 
So he was on this job for a decade, son. Mm. So think about that next time you complain about your fucking bullshit, brah. <laughs> I'm talking to listeners at home. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> For, are you suggesting that someone's like, hey, my wife left me and the, they're shutting down the plant and I don't know if, I'll ever be, if my son can get the braces we thought he'd need. And you'll be like, oh, yeah? Well, R.L. Stein had to write John Travolta jokes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> For 10 years, friend. It was a lot of celebrity-based humor. You can see the old covers. It had mm. like a mad magazine. I was about to say, thing. was it a mad magazine type of thing? So, yes, uh, uh, so he's writing Bananas, did that for 10 years, and in 1969, uh, just a little side comment here, Stein marries an editor and writer named Jane Waldhorn, who becomes Jane Stein, and she's going to have a fun little part to play in this tale oh, of yeah. the creation of Goose. She was Pumps. also working at Scholastic, so she had a very keen like understanding of how the children's mm-hmm. publishing world work. And she ends up going off to co-found Parachute Press in 1983 with three other women who all are authors of children's books. So she's kind of got her own operation going on. And around this time in uh, 1986 uh, Stein starts writing his uh, first horror work. Oh, so this is brilliant. So I was listening to an interview with him and I couldn't find this anecdote anywhere else. So I God, I hope he wasn't just pulling this out of his ass. <laughs> he was talking about uh, how he was like his main like money maker at the time were these joke books that would just fill the pages of the Scholastic catalog because that's always a good market. Fun facts, you know, puzzles, Mad Libs, joke books. So, you know, it's his own section. Yes. In the Scholastic Book Club For catalog. Sure. And um, uh. His editor, who was working alongside him at the New York offices, uh, had a horrible meeting with a like trendy new teen horror writer, uh, Christopher Pike. And she was so furious that the guy was so full of himself that she was like literally as like proof that any jackass can do this was like Stein write a horror book called Blind Date. Which, of course, if that's the case, that started his habit of going off of titles mm-hmm. to write the story. He would normally not come up with a story and then give it a title. He would normally come up with a title for a book, for a horror story, and then everything would come after that, which is such a weird way to work, but makes oh, a no, lot of sense in his um, situation. There's, like, uh, I actually have a list of, like, the way that each title was kind of inspired. Oh, really? Oh, well, uh, well, well let's talk yeah. about Blind Date first. I want to get to that, though, for sure. Okay. So, uh, Blind Date, 1986, written as part of Scholastic's Point Horror series. It started with only the title of, like we said, and it would, uh, uh, and it's about Carrie accidentally breaks the star quarterback's leg at practice, and his girlfriend starts threatening him. But he also gets calls from a girl named Mandy trying to date him, who turns out to be the sister of a girl Carrie accidentally killed in a car accident after she ties him up in a cabin and starts breaking his bones with a mallet. Fucking, which is just misery. Yeah. P.S. Uh, his mental patient brother Donald saves him. It's a whole thing. So there you uh, go. That's the first uh, terrifying tale from the mind of R.L. Stein. And uh, from there, he w- begins to work alongside his wife at uh, Parachute Press as a book packager. And this is a unique kind of thing that's in the publishing industry. But it kind of, you know how like celebrities kind of just have these books kind of pre-made for them and all they have to do is just sign their name and then they get it ghostwritten and kind of put together. So the same way that like movie producers will pitch to studios, book packagers will kind of just take care of all the actual work of creating the book and the design and just like shop it around to publishers and say like, here's what you need. 
And so with Parachute Press, they got Fear Street going with Scholastic. Ah, gotcha. So that's how and it Fear happened. Street uh, was R.L. Stein's teen horror where he just spent a couple years murdering teenagers. It's described as where your worst nightmares live. It followed the students at Shadyside High School and their terrifying tales. But also, side note, he was also the fucking co-creator and head writer of Eureka's Castle. What the fuck? Eureka. Eureka's Castle. Ew. What? You don't remember? They got like <laughs> I do remember it. I I um Batley? I, was Batley there? Batley was there. It was definitely like Nickelodeon's response to like Fraggle Rock and the mm-hmm. Muppets and stuff. More Fraggle Rock, I think. But um I was I, more I, of a puzzle place kid myself. I fucking <laughs> loved puzzle place. I don't I remember not I don't know what it was either. It was just it was like just past my time. I just wasn't into Eureka's Castle. I don't know I, what it was. Eureka's Castle is a show that you would watch in a like Robitussin haze when yeah. you were home when you were home sick. Very, very bizarre. Uh, and that aired from uh, 1989 to 1991 about a sorceress in training and her friends who live in a giant's wind-up castle music box. You know, your standard uh, children's uh, uh, premise. I have fond memories. I don't know. I'm not like, I'm not too mad at it. Lex, uh, uh, my lovely fiance Lexi, she loved Eureka's Castle. So there you go. I think I probably was just being a shithead little kid, being like, that's a girl is the lead. You were too busy writing uh, songs to the tune of Jingle Bells where you buttfuck Barney to death. Yes, and figuring, trying to figure out how to masturbate. Desperately, <laughs> desperately, desperately trying to figure out how to masturbate. Barney's dead, killed him good, killed him in his butt. <laughs> I hate Barney oh so much is... Don't you think I'm an adult? <laughs> Actually, no, I ended it with butt, 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 butt. Um... So also, not a baby. So before, as I furiously grope at my genitals, trying to get something to happen. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, after, uh, after Fear Street, before we get into Goosebumps, he did write three funny sci-fi books as part of Space Cadets, uh, the Space Cadet series, rather. Those were titled Jerks in Training, Bozos on Patrol, and my favorite, Losers in Space. Oh my god! <laughs> Which I think is kind of fun. Um, so, okay, it's 1992, um, the, the summer of sexual intercourse is upon us, you know what I mean? Everybody. what year was this? 1992. Everybody's sucking and fucking and doing, um, micro dots, because they moved past acid at this point. Ecstasy's all the rage, you know? R.L. Stein's going out to that church that they turn into a nightclub every other night. It's that kind of a world we're living in right now. Right? Probably. They'd be listening to I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred is crushing the charts, and I'm taking a lot of liberties about the kind of lifestyle R.L. Stein was living at that point. But either way, he starts writing books for a younger audience uh, than Fear Street, and he aimed it well, It's his twins. wife that pushed it to him. Ah! Because she understood that Fear Street was doing great, and that literally nobody had actually done a horror-themed uh, children's book series. Ah. That it was just a pure untapped market. And all you really had to do to stay within the lines of children's books is just make sure you don't don't kill kids. Don't hurt kids. Like, don't physically attack the children. And mm-hmm. you can get away with a lot. Oh, sure. Which and is- also treat kids. I think a lot of this is the same thing that we talk about when it comes to big hits for kids. Treat kids with the respect that they can be scared and they can handle it. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and obviously this shit is softball horror, but but still, it's like, come on, like, oh, kids are gonna be too frightened of a horror series. It's like, no, everybody likes to be scared, even little kids. You know what I mean? Or at the very least, they like to be sus- like they like suspense. Yeah. They like danger. They like cliffhangers. The possibility of being scared. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes, this is produced through his wife, Jane's Parachute Press, and the first book is titled Welcome to Dead House. And well, they, they order an initial four books. Four books, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, but Welcome to Dead House is number one, right? Yeah. Uh, R.L. Stein says he actually, uh, it's his least favorite book because it is apparently the most scary. Oh, really? Because he hadn't quite nailed down the tone that he was looking for. I remember loving Welcome to Dead House. A lot of people consider it their favorite one because it kind of slipped through the cracks and kind of dropped the vaudeville facade and really was just pure horror for children. And this is like this book series catches fire without any advertising, without really anything besides, you know, Scholastic pushing it. And um, about this, Stein says, the books sat around on the shelves for about three months. We signed up to do four of them. A couple of them came out and they did nothing. They sat there. If this was today with the computers and everything, I think the stores would have pulled them off the shelves and that would have been it. It would have been considered a failure. But the bookstores were more patient in those days. And after, after about three or four months, I think it was discovered by kids. And the whole thing happened by word of mouth. It was just kids telling kids, I really think there's this secret kids network. The difference is they're in school, they're together, and they talk, not like adults. Kids told kids. I think that's how all the big book crazes started, not by advertising. You can't really force kids to read something they don't want. Harry Potter started the same way, I think. Kids telling kids all over the world. That's the amazing part, and it is true. You you think about social circles, and like, I know that I definitely, like if I hang out with Marcus or Mm -hmm. someone like that, and someone who I play, who I know also plays video games, and um, uh, I'll just be like, oh, you should definitely check out Spider-Man or you should definitely check out, you know, The Messengers, whatever I'm playing recently that I'm oh, enthusiastic about. so good? I'm loving it. I'm probably going to go and beat it tonight. <sighs> I love it. It's so surprising, that game. Anyways, though, we'll talk about that in our weekly roundup for Patreon. Join our Patreon. <laughs> That's right, an advertisement in the middle of the show for our Patreon. Patreon.com slash whizbrew for weekly bonus episodes <laughs> as well as extra fan bonuses. Extra fan Bonuses! Plus, Holden gets to eat. And I get to eat. <laughs> I hate stinky feet. Yeah. He gets to eat. Woo! Big stinky feet. Wait, what? Anyways. What if what if the what if your feet stink so bad that your parents die? Where are we? The at? curse of the stinky feet. Write it down. I got this. <laughs> I got this. What so, if you were trapped on a podcast forever? But it turns out, uh, you—it turns out you—you you were actually—it was actually a, a, a video podcast that everyone, aliens, were watching you. You're welcome here. Write that down. <laughs> That's why I think. Hold on, I need more pitches. Give me a pitch for a goose. I must be released from this bit. I have to. Okay. Um. Let's see. Uh, what if your dog was three dogs and one of those dogs was a bad dog? Write it down. It's a good. The decision. critical roller coaster. Every time you get on it, it criticizes the the things you do bad in life. Okay, but what's the twist? Uh, people jump off of it before they get uh, to the end because they're so terrified and they and they get decapitated by um, other roller coasters that pass by. What if there was a juggler that took kids' souls and juggled the souls, but then it turns out uh, he didn't even have hands. How about this? This is actually dr- straight from my middle school days. The curse of the girl that will never like you. Oh, but then it turns out you're a girl <laughs> and you have to deal with systemic uh, sexism. Very progressive. Uh, it's right. <laughs> 
What if you walked into the basement and it, it, you fell down the stairs, but the stairs were like, I'm going to eat your face. And then you, you climb back up the stairs and it turns out there's more stairs. There's a sub-basement the whole time. Um, how about the, um, uh, the kid with the uh, unable to masturbate hands? Uh, he but- just can't figure it out. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It took years. I don't even know why. When it, when it finally, ha- I mean, he, when it finally happened to him, he like thought he broke himself. But then he goes to the doctor and he turns out he has a hormonal imbalance and he's an alien. <laughs> I tried humping the cushions and whatever I could do. And uh, yeah, but either way, that didn't, that was uh, some metaphorical child. Hey everybody, it's me, your burly bruiser Jake, here to talk about this week's sponsor, PUBG Mobile. Experience the mobile game IGN calls a remarkable technical achievement. PUBG Mobile is the official mobile version of PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, featuring incredibly intuitive and highly customizable controls. One of the very best mobile games available, but it's also free to play right now. Enjoy eye-popping graphics, super smooth controls, and a variety of exciting play modes. Survive pulse-pounding 100-player battles on a remote island filled with danger and opportunity. Make your way through sprawling rural and urban environments as you scavenge weapons, commandeer vehicles, and get supplies inside a relentless shrinking battle zone. Mix it up with different play modes that include teaming up with up to three players in squad matches, or play war mode, mini zone, and quick matches for fast-paced arcade-style action. Drop in, gear up, and stay alive for as long as you can. Play the game No Techie Declared, the daddy of Battle Royale. Defeat every player, stay in the zone, and before you know it, you'll be shouting winner winner chicken dinner in front of all of your defeated foes. Download the official mobile version of PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds for free. Go to the App Store on Android or iOS and type in PUBG Mobile, and you can collect a special reward using the link and promo code provided in our episode description. Play now! Either way, it is this series catches up like a fucking moose covered in uh, gasoline getting set on fire. This thing is just so crishy, crishy, crushing it. Uh, at one point, the USA Today top 50 books list was around 20 to 25 Goosebumps books. So it hit, it lands, the the pitch worked, uh, the covers. What is it about the covers that you think like really drew your eye? Because you were down with the work of Tim Jacobus. Tim Jacobus rules. You know what it is? He understood what grabs people's attention. And I'm going to say this right now. I think that kids are a lot like people who just start buying wine for the first time. It is all about the label. You know what I mean? It is all about that just eye-grabbing picture. And Tim J- Jacobus had that ability, and he learned it actually from he was a big prog rock guy, still is. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at old photos of him, he has some real, like, rocker hair. Right? He's since got a haircut, though. He loves, loves that stuff, and he was deeply inspired by especially um, album cover artist Roger Dean, who did all those surreal covers for bands like Yes and Asia. Look up his work. It's really cool stuff. And so he decided... um, when he was young, he got really inspired by that stuff, but he decided to go into covers for books. He said, because you only get better with the sheer numbers. And in the 1980s and early 1990s, paperbacks were doing numbers. So he did a cover for Welcome to Dead House and got the job on Goosebumps. And for his approach for Goosebumps, he says, I used a mixture of paint and airbrushing, which provided that sleek, finished look. And I think that's a huge part of this, that airbrush look. Then the distorted perspective thing really started with the Goosebumps book, Egg Monsters from Mars. It was a kitchen scene, which was going to be hard to make interesting. So I warped the cabinets and the tiles. Then that sort of became the look. It's like this Escher style thing. It's all there to really draw the eye in. It's very colorful. So instead of it being like, 
I remember scary stories to tell in the dark. We're actually going to maybe do an episode on that today. Um, I remember like being afraid of those books. Oh, yeah. Because the cover art was so scary and dark and creepy. But Goosebumps actually really drew you in more because it was like it was a lot more welcoming and at the same time gave off the idea that it could be a scary book. You know what I mean? Here's the thing is on those initial four books, Jacobus only did two out of the four. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, the other two were done by an artist named Jim Thiessen. But Scholastic saw that Jacobus's covers had more pops of color on them. Mm -hmm. He had a more dynamic kind of graphic style that was more eye-catching because uh, between the titles and the illustrations, they immediately realized they were just doing 1950s monster posters. Yeah. And the whole point of a movie poster is to scare, but also to entice, to promise like fun and, en and engagement. Right. Uh, another weird trick that Jacobus talks about in his covers is he tries as often as possible to get the uh, perspective line as low to the floor as possible. Basically to have a child's point of view. Yes. Which is like, which adds so to the smart. fear, which adds to the vulnerability. So smart. It, it really, looking back, I was so charmed all over again, looking back on, and, and we'll talk about the Goosebumps movie, but I guess I'll bring it up now. Watch the credits, end credit sequence for oh, the Goosebumps yeah. movie. It is a loving tribute to the work of Tim Jacobus and all of those awesome Goosebumps uh, covers that you remember. And it, he deserves it because it really was, like, those so iconic. Like, I remembered all of the, talk about the nostalgia thing. Like, I don't remember shit that happened in any of those books, but um, actually, let's- Here's the thing. You do, but you don't like off the top of your head. Right. I, doing a dive into these uh, stories was such a fucking just unlocked vault of memories. Oh, crazy thing about the. So Jacobus was working in traditional media uh -huh. and that takes time. It took like 40 hours of work to complete a cover as a finished painting. And that was after it'd been revised and, you know, different drafts were made. And P.S. He did uh, like a hundred of these. Yeah. Because not only did he do the books, he did the compilations. He did promotional artwork. He did the. Uh, choose your own goosebumps or scare your own scare yourself with goosebumps. I forgot what the give yourself goosebumps. Give you, thank I think you. It was. Yeah, give yourself goosebumps. But uh, you know, R.L. Stein would give him the basic story pitch, like you know, a short micro paragraph of what the story was, and it was kind of uncanny how in tune they were because he would always like kind of like capture the most terrifying moment of the book, even without having read the book. Uh, the only exception to this, R.L. Stein talks about in an interview. Uh, was Say Cheese and Die, which is the one with like the skeletons having a barbecue on yes. in the photo. Yes. Uh, I, there was, was... I was about to bring up Say Cheese and Die because that was like my favorite one, I think, from my childhood. And a lot of it had to do with that cover. Uh, there was no scene where a family has a skeleton barbecue. I know. And so R.L. Stein saw the cover, learned from Scholastic that it was too late to change it, and had to quickly add a dream sequence where the hero just kind of had a nightmare about his family being skeletons. <laughs> That's amazing. My favorite was uh, Monster Blood. That one, for some reason, the idea of just this alive goo, especially uh, as a kid that loved playing with like slime toys, the I, idea that it could have malevolent intent was always You know, it was always like, Monster Blood's kind of like the Say Cheese and Die, like he finds a camera, the kid finds a camera that's fucked up, right, that's evil. Um, it, it was it was always that feeling that as a kid, you're going to get a product or do something that you shouldn't be messing with. And all of a sudden it, it makes your whole life like fucked up. And then you have to like hide the product and hide the effects of the product from your family. That was like a real fear. Like idea. drugs. Like drugs, <laughs> right? Like totally like drugs and totally like any little thing where you have it 
thing that you fucked up and did secretly, like you pissed your pants or something. You know what I mean? And it's embarrassing and, and you just you're so mortified of like your parents finding out that you pissed your pants or that you, you know, got a stain on the couch. It's like that same idea, and I think he tapped into that really well. With That's the, a, a huge thing about the appeal of goosebumps is more so than his eye for horror, uh, was his eye for just like things that gave kids anxiety yeah. when they are that age. Because yep. Uh, a lot of the books have to do with like kids being unpopular and bullied and frustrated and like having to move out to a new town or being stuck with weird relatives and just all these little frustrations that you kind of grow past eventually. There was uh, Why I'm Afraid of Bees. That's the one with the weird kid with the buzz cut with a bee for a head. Yeah, yeah. was uh, all about this just kid who kept getting the shit kicked out of him and he sucked at softball and he just wanted to like switch bodies with someone for a week. And uh, he gets accidentally transplanted into the body of a bee. But more so than the horror of like, oh, no, I'm a bee, was the horror of seeing another kid in his body just killing it and being way more popular and just realizing that kids like really just didn't like him. Uh, The twist with that one is uh, he gets so pissed off at the kid that stole his body that he stings him and forgot that uh, when a bee stings someone, they die. And uh, he wakes up and everything's fine, except he has an uncandy hunger for nectar. Mm. That's another thing that these books did right is uh, the in the movie, the Jack Black version of R.L. Stein kind of has this quote, which captures it perfectly. A good story always has three parts, a beginning, a middle and a twist. Yeah. All the Goosebumps books were written to be super twisty every and cliffhanger single, I, Every single chapter ended with a cliffhanger to a, an obnoxious degree that I even remember realizing when I was reading. I was like, okay, I'll read the next chapter. You don't have to make every single ending of a chapter be like, No, Ugh. but that's what, that was the, tr- these are all tricks from the EC Comics days. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't have that much experience with it. Literally, I remember being a kid and finding my dad's old stash of comics and then my grandpa's pornography, but we'll get into that at a later time. Sure. Um, let's talk about it now. No, let's not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, these all these sci-fi stories, all these horror stories are just like, what if air was like water and humanity would be able to swim and cars could be floating cars and everything would be great. But no, turns out it was alien fish trying to take over the earth, preparing so that they could conquer us more easily. Ah, Like all these last panel twists right, right. just to fuck with people. Um, I have a list on the wiki. They actually have a comprehensive list of, uh, <laughs> of twists in the Goosebumps books. Awesome. Um, some of my favorite ones are uh, the girl who cried monster. That's the one with like the weird, a uh, hairy guy that kind of looks like me on the cover about to eat a bug. Uh-huh. Uh, in that one, uh, Lucy keeps insisting that the guy at her local library is a monster, but no one believes her, which is a common, you know, thing that kids, you know, you know, uh, uh, adults not believing you, adults disregarding you, adults being ignorant to your feelings and concerns. That's a very big fear. And then uh, in the final scene, her parents get so upset with her that they invite the monster librarian into her house to have dinner. And at which point the librarian is like, oh, what are we going to have for dinner? And Lucy's parents go, you. And they turn into monsters themselves Uh. and eat the monster librarian. And they explain to Lucy, we can't have too many like us in town. The humans will get suspicious. That's fun. At Welcome to Camp Nightmare, 
Billy is sent to a weird summer camp where all the campers are getting picked off one by one and it's getting really intense and he's handed a tranquilizer rifle and he's running through the woods to defend himself, at which point his parents appear and say, congratulations, you passed the test. You're going somewhere dangerous, a planet called Earth. <laughs> <laughs> like, it always had to end, like... Yeah. And again, this is something I think we've talked about a couple of times when you're a kid, the very idea of this kind of like flashy, bad ending, what a twist shenanigans was new. You're yeah. seven, you're eight, you're ten right, years old. Right. You didn't you didn't know this shit. No you one had sold this concept to you before because they didn't even think you would be into it until you were older. So the books are doing great. R.L. Stein is writing one a month, even more. He uh talks about how, you know, you write down the outline. And then, like, yeah, you can hammer out, like, 20 pages a day of, like, very simple English, especially if you have this formula. So, like, a lot of people... And he had his wife, actually, uh, who would who would kind of argue him over... He said, we fight about plots all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he said his wife's... One of his wife's worst criticisms, probably one of those anecdotes he tells all the time. I got a manuscript back once, and up at the top were two words. It said, psychotic ramblings. <laughs> That's it. Psychotic ramblings. Which is kind of amazing. But he says she's really smart and she's just too good. Too good an editor. You don't want an editor that good. I don't get away with anything. I always say she's like a hockey goalie. Nothing gets past her. Um, and yeah, he's writing He's writing so much now at this point. Um, and uh, There's always been rumors swarming. I, we have to acknowledge yes. the rumors. There's always been rumors swarming that he did rely on ghostwriters because... Simply between the Spooky normal books. Ghost Rider. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, they're non union. What's that floating pin over there? Oh my god. Oh, whoa, whoa. What's going on with my pants? Why are they being unbuckled? They're being paid by the word and denied royalties. <laughs> I hate how horny this episode about a children's book series is, by the way. I got it. No one appreciates it. No one appreciates it. He has denied it up and down. He has claimed that at most he would solicit outlines from freelancers, but the yes. actual written words in each book were and, his and own. And the premises were his own as well. Mm. Maybe some of with his wife. But I will say, in his defense, he still writes compulsively today. He's that kind of writer. He fucking writes, and he loves it. He said, a friend of mine once asked me, how long can you go without writing? Writers don't retire, do they? I said, well, maybe 10 days. I'm pretty good on vacations. I can do two weeks, but then I have to get back to it. He said, well, you see, it's an addiction. And I thought that was pretty smart. I start to feel uncomfortable if I'm not writing like after like two weeks. He says, I love the writing part. All these people that say writing is hard, I never know what they're talking about. Everyone says, oh, writing is so hard. I don't think it's hard. It's fun. I just think it's fun. And I look forward to starting another one. Seriously. So I think also he just is so, he just can't not do it. You know what I mean? With the books becoming so popular and with so many books coming out, um, the Scholastic kind of for the first time uh, realizes that they have a commercial hit that's bigger than their like school racket can contain. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, you get Goosebumps merchandising out the wazoo. Out the dumper. Pogs, lunchboxes, Cur- board games. And with uh, especially Curly the Skeleton as their mascot as well, well as Slappy that was, the Dummy. That, I feel like that was one of the big uh, flaws with Goosebumps as a franchise is that 
there's you know the main cast changes every fucking book and I there's think, a new book every month exactly it's like really the biggest like thing is just the font of the drippy yeah. goosebumps and and i will say it's more of an aesthetic it's, it's like more- a slime to it and mm. a, a lot of the covers have a slime on it of some kind of neon color you know mm-hmm. what i mean like that, that that's really where it lies but even goosebumps aren't slimy Goosebumps it, are the things that happen on your skin when you get frightened. They're not slimy. You know, it's what I mean? like if you could turn that can't sound effect into a franchise. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, and the other thing that I, I feel like what really hurt then and kind of cratered the series is Scholastic and Parachute Press both like went on marketing bonanzas because they both had like kind of a cut or like, you know, a piece of this action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything from interactive CD-ROMs produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, I tried to, like, watch Let's Plays of them, and they seemed like really bad missed knockoffs. Very high production values. Mm. Uh, Jeff Goldblum plays Dracula in one of them. Hell yeah. Goosebumps, it's, yeah, Spaceballs. Goosebumps the, the, the board game. Exactly. Goosebumps the video game. Goosebumps the clothing line. Goosebumps the Pogs. Oh, the Pogs were big. And Scholastic gets big. pissed off. Because Parachute is apparently authorizing all these business deals, press conferences, all this stuff without Scholastic's say and uh, without their really and and start and they both- and Scholastic is getting heat because you know all these Christian groups and education groups and all these all these uh, kind of institutions that kind of gave Scholastic a pass because they were ostensibly for you know education were like. I think you're just blasting my kids with fucking dummy juice (laughs) and your spook books. Why are you in my school? So then also on top of that, Parachute is like, well, you're holding us back. We're trying to do all this stuff to get more money and sales start declining and they start blaming Scholastic. Then Scholastic pulls out another fucking um, wrench in the whole thing, another like wild card and starts accusing Stein of having ghost riders. And those rumors start to come to the surface. And according to his 1996 publication agreement, it stated that he would be the sole writer of each main series book. But Parachute Press is like, but the whole point of that in the clause in the first place is, is so just, you don't make Goosebumps books without us. Yeah, exactly. We and, can make Goosebumps books without you, fucker. And and on top of that, we've we've hired some freelance people to help with outlines, but we're but uh, everything written is his, according to Parachute. Um, and Parachute, by the way, I say Parachute, I also mean Jane Stein, yeah. R.L. Stein's wife. It's like a husband-wife team really fighting here with uh, Parachute as the company kind of helping them and out. And all this is happening as the book sales are declining. Again, what I, from what I believe is oversaturation, just the fact that, like, yeah. you know, Kids, the kids that loved Goosebumps after four years move on to more adult things. They move on to other scarier shit. So Scholastic starts withholding uh, payment from Parachute, then Parachute takes legal action, and then they take legal action back right at them, and it's just going back and forth. It's this ugly court system battle. And because of that, uh, or at least during that, um, uh, uh, Scholastic ends up not renewing the Goosebumps contract in early 2000, and the books just fucking disappear. There's unfinished books. There's uh, unfinished art. R.L. Stein tried to hang on with the Goosebumps Series 2000s uh, imprint that was supposed to be a little more extreme, spooky, um, but that didn't quite hold. And by the 2000s, uh, you know, a little book called Harry Potter came in yes. and fucking exploded and Scholastic Scholast- to even more marketing Giant and even more heights. money Giant and even heights. more merchandising. Right. Uh, so yeah, it went away until 2008. They did bring it back though. With um, um they they re-released uh old ones, but also did um what what is it called? 
They had Horrorland, Slappyland. Yes, there's Horrorland. all these spinoffs. So there's Horrorland, which is kind of an interesting idea. It is like half uh, half the book. It was a two stories in one book. The first one would be a one off, and the second one would be based in Horrorland. It would be like a continuing, ongoing story, which is a pretty neat idea. Maybe a little confusing, but I think I think it's kind of a neat idea. Clearly, didn't have the same oomph. By the way, Jake, we just we skipped right on past the TV show. We didn't even talk about the TV uh, show. Did you not hear me bark the single greatest piece of music ever written? I heard you bark the barks for the intro. Did we speak about the... Did, am I supposed or, to or, decipher... Or, 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 am I supposed to decipher from your barks the information that Wikipedia conveyed about You're the TV show? You're into for a scare. <laughs> you are not ever in for... I watched the Haunted Mask episode earlier, actually. It was, it was pretty enjoyable. It was pretty good. Um, that mask ruled. It's very weird. I had to like do a lot of Googling just to make sure that my eyes weren't playing tricks on me, but... The Goosebumps TV show was produced exclusively in Canada. 100%. But it was made after Are You Afraid of the Dark finished its run, which was also a scary children's show made, made exclusively, exclusively in, in Canada. Canada. But like Ryan Gosling, like basically any Canadian actor Ryan, that started as a kid had were appeared in either Are You Afraid of the Dark Ryan, or Goosebumps. Ryan Gosling appeared in Say Cheese and Die. Adam West appeared in Attack of the Mutant. Hayden Christensen appeared in Night of the Living Dummy 3. And Alara Vandervoort did Deep Trouble. That was her episode. So, yeah, you can catch some uh, youngins in that one. Um, and it was an incredibly Canadian production. Stein said, we used every Canadian kid there was. It was a totally Canadian production. We shot in an old Molson brewery plant in Toronto, which I love. Uh, I would do book signings here in the United States. Kids would be in line, and they'd say, I'm an actor. How can I be on the Goosebumps show? And I would say, you have to be a Canadian. And every time, the kid would say, what's that? More so than the show itself, they would, uh, they would do like kind of one-hour specials that were hosted by Stein himself. Mm -hmm. And the premiere, I think, on Fox Kids was hosted by the Crypt Keeper puppet, which was its own marketing juggernaut at the time. It's honestly another thing I feel like they put the uh, the that kind of killed Goosebumps vibe was those specials, which although they were very good, the Haunted Mask was like, you know, a good piece of television. Those intros where you finally got to see this 55-year-old Jewish man being like, Hello, children. It's me, the one you love. <laughs> what if what if a mask was uh, it was your face forever? Huh? <laughs> um, what if so you logged on to the Internet, but uh, you exposed yourself to like antisocial strangers who would eviscerate you with comments? <laughs> but then it turns out you also are antisocial. <laughs> You do uh it's I don't I feel wrong doing the do Jewish the man. Fucking I don't want to do that. Do Everyone's it. gonna scream. They'll be like, I'm Scotch Irish, huh? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> All right, pull up that list with the with the titles of the books that you mentioned earlier, that the the inspiration for titles, and I will uh, read this lovely quote from R.L. Stein about scaring children. <laughs> People always say, How far will you go to frighten kids? I think if you make sure it's a fantasy world and the kids know what they're reading is a fantasy and couldn't happen, then you can go pretty far and it wouldn't upset them much. And he also has an opinion on good violence versus bad violence that I really loved. There is a thing. I believe in violence. I love violence in movies and stories and everything. I think it's good for kids because it gets that out of them. Kids are very smart, and if they see a movie in which people are punching each other and it's very violent, they know it's movie violence. If they walk down the street and two people are fighting, punching each other, it's a totally different reaction from real violence. So the whole thing about violence for kids is I'm on the other side. I think it's a really good thing for kids. I just think that kids 
People don't give kids credit enough to know they're smart enough to know the difference between real violence and real danger and fictional danger. Thank you, R.L. Stein. I fucking agree with you, you motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad he thinks that. It would be for once. I would love to have an, like, a creator who gets interviewed about like their influence on kids to be like, "No, I think it's terrible, but the money's too good. I'm a giant hypocrite. Help me, someone stop me. <laughs> Just once, someone could do that. That'd I would be love amazing. It. I feel like a hypocrite, but the money's great. <laughs> Healthcare. I needed it. <laughs> I was I was working on Bananas Magazine. Give me a fucking yeah. break. I was working on a magazine called Bananas. It sucked. <laughs> I, I hate it. So it's a lot of this stuff was inspired from his own life. The Haunted Mask was specifically about how his son Matthew uh, was trying on a vinyl Halloween mask. And you know what happens. Like you get a little sweaty. You get like... A little hot and the suction just kind of clings it to your face and it's stuck on his head and he realized like the genuine terror that his son was experiencing at the time he was like i gotta write this down i guess i'll help him later but right now i gotta write this down monster blood is another story uh that yes. was based on his uh son who uh threw uh one of the many slime toys perhaps the ectoplasm from right. ghostbusters on a wall and it had sunk it had like stained the wall so deeply that the idea that like the slime itself was like uncontrollable. <laughs> stay out of the uh, stay out of the basement is uh, according to his official biography. It came from Ohio. Uh, the idea for this book came when an image flashed into his head of a father taking off his baseball cap, but there were leaves growing out of his head instead of hair. He started asking himself questions: How did the leaves get there? Who is this father? Is he turning into a plant? No. He's already a plant. Also, real quick, I love that Arl Stein's autobiography is It Came From Ohio, and Tim Jacobus's autobiography is It Came From New Jersey, which I think is very sweet. So why does Goosebumps persevere this long, besides the fact of the incredibly catchy theme song sung by a dog? Well, I think for me personally, I don't know how, is it doing well now? I feel like for me, it is such a huge nostalgia thing. Like, literally, Lexi came home with three Goosebumps books, Aww. and she and this was like months ago, by the way. This had nothing to do with me doing the episode. She came home with three Goosebumps books. I think it was the Wolf, the Werewolf one, a Fever Swamp. Uh, yeah, the Wolf Fever Swamp. Um, Say Cheese and Die, and maybe the Haunted Mask. I forget. The was third it the one, reprints or did no. they have the new covers? Oh, gee, she she just okay. was walking by a stoop sale, Aww. and for some reason, it, she just had to get them. She was just compelled. She doesn't ever do shit like that. She was like, I brought up the Goosebumps book because there's such a there's such a nostalgia, especially with our generation, for those books in that time that is just immediately gives me a, a little happy. You know what I mean? Well, anything that was that popular and that ubiquitous will lend itself to like that sense of nostalgic community. But also, like, not every kid who picked up Goosebumps became a horror fan. Uh -huh. But every horror fan picked up Goosebumps. Yes, for sure. It was definitely like that intro, baby's first horror. Um, and it kind of had this Sonic the Hedgehog thing. This is people just open up your podcast app, scroll all the way down to <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog, our first episode. But the idea of the uh, approachable rebellion, like the safe taboo, is mm. narcotic yes. and will always have like a lingering group of fans that cling to that moment. Especially children. I will also say uh, the the story ends pretty well uh, for R.L. Stein and his lovely wife. Um, Scholastic in 2003 purchases all the rights for the franchise for $9.65 million. And that's when they started doing the revival. Uh, five years later, they started doing the revival. So Stein doing just fine. Uh, uh, he now lives in Austin after spending most of his life in Manhattan. 
Yeah. And the movie came out. Jack Black's in it. It's very weird. Like, especially because I, I, I barely watched. I had it on, like, a little window while I was doing other research. I also kind of skimmed, but it, I actually want to sit down and watch it because it does look like a very fun. There, like we I just, will say there's a great twist. Yeah. There is a great twist. We just watched uh, Hocus Pocus, and it, may, it got me actually more in the mood for those fun, like, uh, Hocus how- Pocus is a dark that's like a Disney movie where they eat children yeah, totally. where children are confirmed eaten but I mean it doesn't it, it, it still, it's still Halloween movies for people who don't want to be scared mm, you know what I yeah. mean it like it scratches that itch um, and so uh, it's fun to see family uh, Halloween movies um, so yes the Goosebumps movie uh, they actually had a movie in the works in 1998 but they ended up scrapping it Columbia Pictures acquires the rights in 2008 during that revival that was going on um the screenwriting team who came up with the story for it which i think is a very fun story i think the thing that made me actually want to watch it in the first place was like oh cool rl stein's a character in the movie but jack black plays him like this totally weird, crazy frumpy like like finicky author man where like rl stein is just this completely nonchalant yeah, yeah. old like well he apparently approached rl stein about how he was going to portray the character and rl stein, stein gave him his stamp of approval to make it more interesting but he actually used None other than Orson Welles as the inspiration for his portrayal of R.L. Stein. He said, I wanted to give my Stein a little extra gravitas. I couldn't just be good. Old Jables playing the genius writer. So I wanted to do someone who was considered a genius and maybe had a dark secret. Seemed like Orson Welles filled the bill. So I literally watched Citizen Kane 40 times and then went to set. That was my preparation. (laughs) So... Um, but yes, uh, apparently the people who, the screenwriting team who came up with the story, Scott Alexander and Larry um, Karaszewski, they did uh, one of my favorite memories actually was watching Problem Child. They wrote Problem Child, which um, my father hated and I loved. <laughs> and I remember I used to go to a movie theater with my dad and upon leaving, I've never seen someone like hate a movie so much. That was like the first time I saw somebody like just be disgusted by a movie. <laughs> and I was like, I thought it was great. Like whatever. But anyways, uh, but they also did. Did, um, People versus Larry Flint, Ed Wood, and uh, the uh, Man on the Moon. So these are like pretty prestigious writing team. Um, they came up with the story for it. They uh, it was uh, directed by uh, what's his name, something Letterman, who was hired. Rob Letterman, Rob who's Letterman. actually working right now on the uh, Detective Pikachu movie. Oh, very fun! And he did a lot of stuff with Jack Black already. Gulliver's Travels, Shark Tale. So um, they they were already kind of like a good team. And uh, yeah, I kind of want to check it out. It seems like a lot of fun. People had some really good things to say about it. Uh, Goosebumps Two, Haunted Halloween, also considered just fine. Yeah. Is very not nearly not as good as the first, and very completely fine. Ermagay, hoodie. Uh huh. Ermagay, you forget about the meme. Ermagay, uh, goosebumps. My favorite bitch. Ugh. Uh, remember, remember when memes were image macros of just funny pictures with some impact font <laughs> and not um, stick figures about why white people are superior. Ah, <laughs> oh, the good old days. God, I love it. Speaking of the good old days, the good old days of Goosebumps. This has been a lot of fun for me. I really enjoyed learning more about this as it was this weird. It's like a it's like a weird distant. It's like a dream you had re, being really enthusiastic about the Goosebumps books. You know what I mean? You just you, you, you're like, wait, did that happen? No, were, it was were a, very, a huge yeah. thing. And they they were everybody fucking loved them. It was just this, and and again going back to what it's like to be in school and around a bunch of people all the time. That's how fads happen for children. Like it they're was viral. It was yo yos. It was pogs. It's like you show up at one place every single day. We're the doing same this now. Place. 
And every, We're doing this now! Exactly, right? And it just gets communicated so much more. <laughs> hey, get a load of fucking Holden. He doesn't have fucking uh, slap bracelets. What a turd. What a turd he didn't... F- oh, my God. No, we all got him. You don't. What the hell's wrong with you? I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> then you come home, borderline in tears, being like, Ma, we gotta get the bracelets! Yeah. yeah, dude. I remember for me, it was Ninja Turtles. I literally just came home one day. I was just... And I told about... I talked about this when we did the episode, but I was just like, I need now me. <laughs> And my dad, and I was like, can I just have, I pleaded with my dad on the phone, my, my, I was like, can I please speak to dad? Because I knew he was at the office still, and I was just like, please, just a single Ninja Turtle, my favorite's Michelangelo, but whatever one is there, it doesn't matter. And then he surprised me, I came home, I went downstairs, and it was all four Ninja Turtles, Aww. and a Foot Clan soldier, and I think maybe Sh- Shredder and, it was like, incre- I, was, I was like, oh, like I, fu- and he put them all out, like on the floor for, like he, you put them in like a presentation for me and I was like fucking lost my shit um, but I remember that same thing you know thing. what I don't care what you guys say capitalism's alright capitalism rules <laughs> oh my god I have so many disgusting fond memories of like running down and like to, to, to get a Game Boy or running oh. down on Christmas Day and there it's so sad how much stronger those memories exist in my head than like important family moments you know what I mean no 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 it's uh, like there's I have like when I first held my nephew Benjamin in my arms and realized that like uh, the beauty of life was around me like that was pretty good but it wasn't like when I woke up one day after losing a tooth and found Super Mario Brothers 3 under my pillow uh, yeah. that fucking ruled I, oh, I can like smell it just you talking <laughs> about it Thank you so much for joining us. And if you'd like to uh, support us further than just listening, and believe you me, li- just listening to this podcast helps us so much. But if you want to go check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, uh, we put out weekly content, as we said earlier. It's a lot of fun. Right now, I'm watching um, uh, uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood with Lexi, and we're doing recaps on each part. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, you can catch me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Hope. You can follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung. And hey, if you're a fan of uh, the college humor or Drawfee, uh, check out Dropout.tv, where uh, the show I, I've been working on, uh, Cartoon Hell, is available. Cartoon Hell. I play the I play a, a middle manager demon. There you go. Take care, everyone. Until next time. <laughs> keep on whizzing. And always never stop bruising. <laughs> 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 The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka golden ticket is all mine.